Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. This morning we have the great privilege of hearing from God in His Word, and we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through to the end of chapter 17. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you and they shall judge the people in the town. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do not set up any wooden asherah beside the altar you build to the Lord your God, and do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. If a man or woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant, and contrary to my command, has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them, or to the sun, or the moon, or the stars in the sky. And this has been brought to your attention. Then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, Take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your certificate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death, and then the hands of older people. You must purge the evil from among you. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office at that time. Inquire of them and they will give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they instruct you to do. Act according to whatever they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you to the right or to the left. Anyone who shows contempt for the judge or for the priest who stands ministering there to the Lord your God is to be put to death. You must purge the evil from Israel. All the people will hear and be afraid and will not be contemptuous. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a 
king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over him, one who is not in Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, Donald Horn wrote a book in the 1960s called The Lucky Country. He used that title with tongue firmly placed in cheek because he was criticising Australia, not praising our wealth. And he says this as he begins the concluding chapter. Australia is a first-rate country led by second-rate leaders. A first-rate country led by second-rate leaders. He speaks in the book about uh, leadership in Australia and how lazy it has been, how we've rested on our laurels, how we've been granted great wealth naturally, but we've accidentally, not with deliberate planning, used it well. And if it's true for Australia that we haven't been real great in developing leaders, it's also true in the church that we haven't been real great in intentionally, theologically raising up leaders for God's people. We might have done it occasionally 
with business models in mind, but we've been even less good at helping people to think about leadership with scriptural categories, with scriptural principles applied. We need to think about leadership in the church as God thinks about leadership in the church. And in the scriptures, he's given us wonderful outlines, principles, examples to follow. And because Christian leaders have so much power, we have to think really carefully about how we use that power, what that gift really means. If the church is a colony of heaven, then we are different from the world and so will our leadership. Now, if you were around last year, you might have heard some of these sermons I've preached from the Pentateuch. We looked at Exodus under the title Guardians of Grace and Leviticus, Heroes of Holiness, Numbers, Multipliers of Ministry, and today and next week as well from Deuteronomy, what it means to be pastors of power. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing his people for life in the land, for life when he is no longer around. So in the very first chapter of Deuteronomy, flip back with me, we read these verses to, to frame the whole book. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9. At that time, Moses, I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I will set them over you. You answer me what you propose is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charge your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your people, judge fairly whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone for judgment. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you need to do. The very first chapter of Deuteronomy, almost introducing the book, we hear this description of the problem and perhaps the solution to leadership of the nation. Friends, at Ridley, we want you to be clear minded leaders whose model is theological and not secular. We want you to be humble leaders who listen and learn and care for themselves and others. We want you to be bold leaders who take hard decisions for the sake of the people in your community. We want you to be strategic leaders raising up the next generation. We want you to be sacrificial leaders who recognise that our reward is delayed stored up for us in heaven, not likely to be received now. As Peter Parker said, 
with great power comes great responsibility. Or as Jesus Christ said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for them. So we learn in Deuteronomy, the end of 16, uh, the, the rest of chapter 17, how God wants us, how God wants his people of Israel to be led, what it means for God to appoint public leaders or judges who, according to chapter 16, verse 20, pursue justice and justice alone. Yes, justice might be one way of translating this verse. We hear in verse 19 that the leaders, the judges, are not to pervert justice or show partiality, not to accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the but following this verse, verse 21, we read, Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God. Do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord God hates. Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw, for that would be detestable to you. So perhaps the words of verse 20 might better be translated, Pursue righteousness and righteousness alone. Because righteousness speaks of bribes and, and perverting justice. But righteousness also speaks about how we might think about our life before the Lord and how we might worship him, not setting up wooden Asherah poles. So righteousness is bigger than justice, and leaders amongst God's people are to do both. The leaders amongst God's people, we're told in verse 2 of chapter 17, have to make sure the covenant is obeyed. If a man or woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord God gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God, in violation of the covenant, of his covenant, and contrary to command, then there must be discipline, Moses explains. The job of the judges, the job of these public officials, is to help people know what living before the Lord is like, what it means to belong to his covenant people. And indeed, further on down in chapter 17, if the local leaders can't quite work out what the appropriate course of action is, they are to escalate the issue and take it to judges, priests in the sanctuary in Jerusalem. We read that in verse 9. Go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who's in office at that time, inquire of them, and they will give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Lots of authority is given to the local leaders, but there might be occasions when that authority is deferred to a higher authority. Not all authority is in the local fellowship. These judges are not so much legal officers as interpreters of the law, helping people to understand what the law requires of them as individuals, what the law requires of their fellowship as well, with the goal that the local community might be purged of its evil. That phrase occurs a number of occasions. That the local fellowship might 
be secure in the covenant, that the local fellowship might pursue moral integrity, that the local fellowship might be cohesive in the way it's pursuing the Lord. There needs to be a vision for the common good, and Moses lays that out when there's going to be so many threats to the people of God as they enter the And in this text, Moses explains that emergency times require emergency measures. There's great seriousness to surveying, even being stoned. Now, we need to, as leaders, protect and defend the fellowship, the people that God has placed in our care. And occasionally, that might also mean that we need to remove people from the fellowship of which we are pastors. It's a pretty rare occurrence, but I think that's the principle that Moses is here preaching about. Our discipline won't be quite as dramatic, but nonetheless it needs to be firm. When I was pastoring at St Jude's, I was the acting vicar for a time. We had a fellow who was a lech, basically. He was making a nuisance of himself. Uh, he was an older man who was coming along to the university-aged congregation and uh, making himself uh, mistreating the women. So we gave him a number of warnings and we decided that it was time to chuck him out. Uh, He was very angry and as he left the building, he swiped shelves and threw things on the ground. My job, though, wasn't to in their last resort, just protect him, but to protect the fellowship and make sure the women who weren't coming to church actually felt safe to come to church. My job was to care for the fellowship and its integrity, not just to care for that one individual. Now, the, the night that we finally evicted him was the last night I was acting vicar. The next day, Richard Condy began his ministry at St Jude's. Uh, I sat down with Richard on the first on that Monday morning and Richard said, what was church like yesterday? I said, well, we excommunicated someone. He said, do you do that often? I said, well, most Sundays, as it turns out. (laughs) We need to have the confidence to apply the scriptures to the life of the fellowship, even when sometimes that's really hard. Your job as leaders, whatever kind of leadership that is, is to not only help people to understand the Bible, but to help people obey the Bible, to apply the Bible such that people will understand the consequences of their disobedience. And it takes scriptural wisdom. It's not an easy process. My earliest recollections of doing this were long before that occasion at St Jude's was more in mentoring people one-on-one and helping those folk I was mentoring to find the, the scriptural application to something that was going on in their life. I felt at first really weird and uncomfortable about applying the scriptures to that person with this particular issue before them. But in time, grew more comfortable realising that's what a leader does. By your moral leadership, we maintain the difference between 
the church in the world. You are pastoring, either in youth groups, small groups, congregations, a covenant community, creating the conditions under which God's people might grow. Now, Deuteronomy 17 doesn't give all the details of what a judge's job was. In fact, we have hardly any details about what we should do. But at least Moses gives us the principles. Or as Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to But having spoken of these judges, these public officials, Moses then turns his attention to the king. There wasn't yet a king in Israel, as it turned out. But he speaks about the possibility of kings and the way kings should understand their own ministry as well. So from 17 verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, you've taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. This is not going to be a king like other nations who are king because their father was king before them. You've got to appoint a king according to how the Lord your God chooses. You're not to be like the nations. There's nothing wrong with getting a king. It's just that the king has to be different from the way the other nations will have elected, elected their king. It's God's choice. Someone who's a brother from Israel, not a foreigner, we learn in verse 15. And there to have high moral standing. Verse 16, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. That's not because he shouldn't run a horse star. That's because having lots of horses means you're too militaristic. Must not acquire great numbers of horses or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them because there were horses available for sale there. The Lord your God has told you not to go back to that way. He must not take many wives or his heart might be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Regarding warfare and women and wealth, the king has to be careful. But even though the king has extraordinary authority, in the next few verses, 18 to the end of the chapter, we learn that the king also is under the authority of the scriptures. He is not above the word, but he himself must also be under the word. Verse 18, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, He's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. He's to put the law in his pocket or under his pillow. It's to be with him and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom Israel. He's to write down the law and own the law and read the law and learn the law and keep the law and obey the law and preserve the law and pass on the law. 
the public officials, the judges had responsibility to apply the law, but the king has responsibility to apply the law to his own life as well. He doesn't escape. Kings were not so much in the early uh, passages a picture of God. It's a picture of what the faithful Israelite would be, a model believer. Pastors, ministers, youth workers, campus workers have authority to lead, but they also are people under authority, living lives that are examples of scriptural principles the scriptures which guide us and shape us and remake us. So when you're giving a talk, wherever that might be, make sure that the people who are listening to you know how the Bible is impacting you. A question often asked of preachers is, should you, in your own quiet times, be reading, reflecting on the passage that you're going to preach on Sunday. The different schools of thought on this. Some people say, no, you should be thinking about your own life in your quiet times and leave aside the passage for Sunday. That's for another time of day. Others say, well, if I can't reflect on the passage for Sunday in my own life first, then how am I going to preach with unction to my congregation on Sunday? That aside, we still need to give examples from our own life and heart to show that we are under the authority of the scriptures and use it as often as we can in our ministries. Now, Jesus in Matthew 22, this is really important, in criticizing the Sadducees, he writes, uh, uh, he says, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures. If we want our churches to resist the enticements of the world, then the leaders of the church need to model how they themselves are thinking about reacting to, negotiating with the pressures that the world puts on them as well. We're not CEOs. We're not coaches. We might occasionally be charismatic leaders. But beyond them all, we're pastors who work with principles. We have great moral, spiritual, educational, institutional authority, even if it doesn't feel like that relative to the culture. But we have that authority firmly placed underneath the authority that God gives to us in the Scriptures. Even the king This passage doesn't really tell very much about what the king does, his constitutional roles. In fact, in both of these instances, we don't have any description of organisational charts, position description, line management, KPIs, distinguishing spheres of responsibility, no terms of employment, no pay schedule, almost nothing about leadership except that we use the scriptures let them stand by the You see the point that it's making about leadership? The big idea of 
Deuteronomy 17 is the scriptures are designed to help you lead the people of God. The scriptures are designed to help the people of God be the people of God. That's what makes us the people of God. But if that's the big idea of the text, the big idea of the sermon is this. Why are you at college? Yes, we want you to learn languages and scripture. Yes, we want you to understand history and theology. Yes, we want you to develop skills and competencies. Of course, all of those things we do, we want you to learn. But behind all those surface-level tasks, we want you to be here to grow in confidence so that you might lead the people of God underneath the Scriptures and with the Scriptures, applying the Scriptures. We want you to be confident as leaders. That's why you're here. Now, we think it's excellent that you study for three years or if you're an Anglican candidate for four years. Not because we just want to fill your brains with more and more, but we recognise that actually growing in confidence is a very slow boil kind of development. And being here for three or four years, however long it takes, is fine. It's wonderful. It grows your confidence to be a leader amongst God's people. That's what we want. Why do students run chapel so they can grow in confidence? Why do we get student leaders to shake hands at the door so they can grow in confidence? Why do we encourage the RSC and its activities so that people grow in confidence to lead amongst God's people? We exist to cook leaders for the church. And it takes a long time to cook an effective leader. Perhaps 10 years if you think about a traineeship, study, becoming an assistant. One day, a leader of a local church. Leaders are more effective when they've been slow cooked and deep fried. Listen to these words from Paul to Timothy. Paul says to a, a not very confident young man on Timothy 4 Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. And set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your people. Christ's sake.